Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of the Comics Collective, the weekly podcast where we read and discuss a collection of comic books or a graphic novel. I'm your host, Dallas. I'm your host, Anne, and I would like to say thank you for not flipping us off today when you're doing the countdown with your fingers. It's very cool. Very, very glad you changed today. I mean, I'm on my best behavior because we have a guest here that Mm -hmm. I like a lot, and so I didn't want to give him the bird like I give everyone else the bird. Okay, okay, got got it. Makes sense. (laughs) But for today's episode, we are going to be talking about Scott Snyder, Jock, and Francesco Francavilla's Batman masterpiece, Batman the Black Mirror, with friend of the show, Owen, from the YouTube channel, Owen Likes Comics. How you doing, Hi, Owen? Hi, I'm Alexis. Is that what I'm supposed to say? <laughs> okay, perfect. Yes. I've listened yes, to enough of it. these that I, I kind of thought I knew how the intro went. Hi, thank you for having me on. Yeah. I, I like Batman and I like comics, um, as the internet often reminds me. So I get to talk about a Batman comic. What greater pleasures in life are there? I mean, I can think of a few, but we are nerds. So these are higher for us than, than we might let on. Um, and for a lot of Batman fans, they haven't felt any of those other pleasures that are better than Batman comics. Mm-hmm. You know, they've taken a vow of celibacy, just like Batman. <laughs> and... Therefore, their only joy is reading Batman comics. Mm-hmm. Um, I gotta say, like, I do think I like comics more when I was 16 than I do now, and that might be the reason. <laughs> Just gonna throw that one out there. But um, I want to get something out of the way at the beginning of this. And yeah. we have had a literal review of this show call you out for your Batman takes. <gasps> and so I would like to to give you the floor to prep us for this Batman episode. How are you coming at this? Are you going to be nice to Batman? What How can? What can we expect from you about Batman the Black Mirror? <laughs> I feel like I'm making an apology video. <laughs> get, get the notes out. Get the notes out. I've made a consistent <laughs> lapse of judgment. No, you've got to start um, it with like just a, a second of silence and then... <sighs> there you go. Yeah, hold on. I need I need more tears. I need my dog with me. Where's my dog? <laughs> Please. Yeah. Um, I I had a consensual workplace uh, relation with Batman. <laughs> For the record, uh, if this podcast oh, gets I, uh, was cancelled, I was not part of this bit. Yeah, no. This is this is. I'll make another apology okay, video no, later. For brilliant. for that. I say I would like all, to apologize. All three for my of us can read video. off. All three of us can read off a note simultaneously, and then we start singing like a, "Imagine" like a barbershop quartet. <laughs> yeah, Beautiful. we can do every other word together. It'll be nice. <laughs> okay, so what I th- my feelings on Batman are complicated because my feelings on Batman have changed a lot since I started reading comics. Batman was one of the first superheroes I ever met because, of course, he was. He's such a widespread and popular superhero. It You can't n- not exist in this, like, modern world and not run into Batman at some point or another. It's just going to happen. And this was one of the first Batman books that I read personally. And I remember I read, like, a few issues and I put it back down because I'm like, I have no idea what the fuck's going on. Bruce is acting so weird in this book. And that is unironic, by the way. I had no idea this wasn't Bruce Wayne when I first picked this book up. And I'm like, this is just, it's weird. And it would take me years to come back to it. And now it's one of those books that's like, it it gives me the good feelings. Like, I literally tweeted about it. And then I wrapped myself up in a blanket yesterday, poured myself some hot chocolate. And I just sat by the candle right, candlelight reading this book. 
and it reminds me of why this character is special. When I talk a lot about Batman on the show or just in jest on Twitter, it's because I'm more frustrated at the fact that DC has decided that this is the only character that can apparently do anything when it's like, I've been reading comics for so long and that is definitely not true. I wish more other characters would get the same spotlight and be able to have the same like birth and like load of memorable stories that this character has, but yet he's the only focus here. It's easy to get burnt out. And I think I get burnt out a lot, but it's stories like this that remind me why the character clicks as often as he does. It's because when you have special stories like this come along, it reminds you why you love the medium. It reminds you why you love this world. It reminds you why you love these characters. This is one of the things that this is one of the books that gets Batman and Gotham so totally right. And it makes you forget anything else. Like all my other gripes with like DC Comics at the moment completely thrown to the side because this book is just ideal it is perfection and we'll go further into that i love everything this book does with my whole heart and i love batman with my whole heart and that is not me making a fake apology statement that's me saying this character is genuinely genuinely awesome i wish this happened more often that's super interesting to hear you talk about that and because i think batman is a really versatile and interesting character i think that dc has latched onto him for a reason but it can feel really frustrating as someone who wants them to just do anything else to have them just keep going back to the golden goose. You know, it's like, yes, I understand Batman is the golden goose. Just please give me something else. And then you read a story like this and you're like, oh, well, never mind. Like that, that was better than anything else yeah. I've read in a minute. So I guess it's oh, perfect. I think there's maybe one Batman story in the last like five years or so that even comes close to like some of these classic stories. It was um the one, the short mini came out not too long ago. Um, Black label, the guy Imposter. who wrote the movie. Yes. Imposter. Yes. That one. I love that one. I mean, I'm not going to sit here and listen to Batman universe slander. No, okay, I, I do feel the need to jump in and defend Brian Michael Bendis's like last great contribution to comics in however many years we should cherish it. <laughs> I keep forgetting that one happened. But it is that good. He goes to Dinosaur Island. I know. He goes to Gorilla City. I know. He goes to Thanagar. They fight on a submarine. He goes to the Old West. It's drawn by Nick Darrington. We all keep batting for a comic I just told you I love. He becomes a White Lantern. This is <laughs> this is what Dallas feels like when he calls out superhero comics and everyone's like, oh, so you hate them? No. But <laughs> yeah, fine. My take's done. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to shut up. I just think it's really interesting that you said only good Batman comic in the last five years. When we look at all this, look at all this evidence we just provided you. You know, if we if we class Batman universe in its original kind of like Walmart form, that's twelve great issues of Batman. What do you have to say about all that, Anne? That's a year's worth of great Batman. I cannot count to twelve. That's all I have to say. Do they have Walmart in the UK? No. No? It must be nice. <laughs> so you've never had the pleasure of like going into a Walmart and being like, is that woman wearing any pants? No, that has that has happened to me in a Walmart, funnily enough, but not uh, not on this side of the Atlantic, no. So you, you come over to our side and the first thing you have to wrestle <laughs> with is whether or not a woman is wearing pants in public. <laughs> it's perfect. Um, Owen, what was your experience like with the Black Mirror on this reread. 
Yeah, so I'm kind of in a similar boat to the the two of you were. I was kind of really getting into reading monthly DC comics at this time. I'd kind of been reading Marvel on and off since around like House of M period, kind of in and out for different years. But I'd never really dived into a lot of DC stuff until kind of like 2010, 2011. And so naturally one of my first go-to points is Batman. And it's like right at the beginning of Batman Incorporated. Um, so I have no idea what's going on. The status quo is like so far removed from what I'd expect. And I'm kind of, I don't know, a little bit alienated. And I don't really get into reading Batman issue to issue until ironically Snyder takes over and you get the new 52 run, which is still one of my favorite kind of periods of Batman, especially in a modern sense. So I'm not actually sure whether or not at the time when I first attempted to read Batman, I actually... I actually read Black Mirror or whether or not this is something I kind of gone back to later on as I kind of built up more of a more of a knowledge of DC and of Batman specifically and kind of filled in the gaps later. Um, but rereading it recently um, for this podcast, I, I really, really enjoyed it. I found it really interesting, especially coming at it, having read a lot of kind of Scott Snyder's work, specifically reading him do kind of 52 issues on Batman and knowing the types of stories he likes to tell with the character you really see this as kind of like the foundational piece of what he would go on and do almost immediately after with the new 52, while also being a very unique Batman story in that it's this kind of gritty noir detective tale, which itself is an uncharacteristic, but with Dick Grayson as Batman, a character who is not renowned for being a detective. You know, he, Batman does loads of incredible flips in this book and he lands in incredibly acrobatic positions, but we don't, when we think of, you know, all the different Robins and their skill sets, if anything, kind of Tim Drake's the one you associate with being the detective. And, you know, Tim cameos in this book here and there, but it's, it is, by all intents and purposes, a Dick Grayson story and about Dick and the Gordons. And so to force Dick in this position where Bruce could probably solve the situation in one issue. But for Dick, it's a completely different circumstance. And I really enjoy having a kind of like mystery detective batman story where you're kind of reading it and figuring things out at the same pace that batman is it's a real change of pace and i do appreciate that here i think that this narrative is really able to hold the reader at the exact right place throughout there are never any moments in this where i felt like i was figuring the mystery out any faster than batman but it didn't feel unnatural for batman to be figuring it out in front exactly. of me which it was just fun to read a smart Batman comic as well. I was like, oh, this writer is writing Batman smarter than me, the reader. And it it was fun. It's fun to read these genius characters as geniuses. Um, so now that we have our initial thoughts a little bit out of the way, um, Owen, do you want to maybe place this Batman within its larger context for our listeners. Yes. Yeah, so Dallas kind of pre-warned me that I was kind of bring, being brought on as a historian. So I've kind of pre-prepared a little, a little mini Owen likes comics for you to kind of run down how this book was created, what was going on in the kind of wider Batman law and why I think it's so significant and interesting. So let's see if I can do this in one take. <clears throat> Told throughout detective comics issues 871 to 881, Black Mirror holds an interesting place within the chronology and history of Batman. 
Not only was this one of the final stories to feature the Cape Crusader before DC's New 52 relaunch in September 2011, but it bridges the gap between two distinct eras and generations of storytelling for The Dark Knight. Although Black Mirror is the product of its writer, Scott Snyder, the world in which it inhabits was crafted by Grant Morrison through their seven-year run as the main Batman writer. Specifically, after the events of 2008's crossover event, Final Crisis, Bruce Wayne is seemingly killed off after being hit by Darkseid's Omega Beams, and the ensuing issues of Batman saw Dick Grayson step up in his adopted father's footsteps as Gotham's new, as Gotham's new protector. Now, Dick would serve as the lead character in Morrison and Frank Whiteley's Batman and Robin series, which lasted from August 2009 to August 2011, with Bruce eventually returning in issue 15. However, Bruce's return wouldn't revert the Dark Knight status quo to its classic form, as instead of simply reclaiming the mantle, Bruce instead developed Batman Incorporated, an international organization designed to essentially franchise and create a global team of new heroes, while Grayson continued on as Gotham's main Batman. Now, this all occurred simultaneously with Scott Snyder taking over the Detective Comics title in January 2011. And while Morrison's Bat titles focused on the fantastical and globetrotting adventures of Bruce as he travelled from country to country setting up Batman Incorporated, Snyder sought to retain the gritty and street-level focus of more traditional kind of post-crisis Batman stories, specifically Frank Miller and David Mazzuchelli's Batman Year One. Black Mirror, arguably the crown jewel of Snyder's run on Detective Comics, pays a margin somewhat acts as a spiritual sequel to Year One. Not just by its depiction of Gotham as this kind of neon colourful hellscape, but how it furthers the journey that characters like Jim Gordon and his children began all those years ago, telling a story of legacy and the pressure of being the child of such a notable figure in Gotham's history, as well as the relationship between Gotham City and Batman, especially as which is a kind of running theme throughout Snyder's later work, and pretty much any time he writes Batman, that idea of how Gotham and Batman craft their identity in contrast to each other is a major part and a major theme of their writing, and especially in Black Mirror, which is a scenario where someone else finds himself underneath the cape and cowl. That was awesome. You're so good at that, Owen. Uh, our listeners, if you haven't checked out Owen's YouTube channel, that right there is the level of quality and craft you can expect. Owen has such a talent for opening up comics and explaining just where they sit, not only in the history of the canon, but within our own world as well. Awesome, awesome resource that you need to check out. Um, but now that I'm done like firehosing some love at my friend, I do want to talk a little bit about this Detective Comics run because people know I love Morrison's Batman run, but I think this sort of underserved what Dick was doing back in Gotham during Batman Inc. is such an interesting period of DC chronology. So, Anne, you are our local DC lesbian. Um, what do you think of this period right before the New 52? Do you think of it as like a creatively fertile time? Do you think of it as a sort of everybody's wrapping up knowing that there's a reboot coming? And how do you feel like Black Mirror fits into that last year of post-crisis continuity? It's funny because I remember reading, looking back at the time, reading a lot of the titles that are going on and trying to get caught up where I could. And none of it felt like wrapping up. It all felt like stories were continuing as, you know, they would any other time. It didn't feel like it was the most creatively fertile time in DC's history, but it felt like everyone was just chugging along like everything's normal because I remember... Like the Justice League International just come back and they're doing their own thing, hunting down Maxwell Lord. 
um, Brightest Day was going on at the same time, trying to set up new storylines. They brought in like Aqualad for Aquaman. They're like, hey, these characters are going to be important someday. And then, you know, some of them were like Aquaman had his nice new relaunch, but then others weren't. Like they kind of forgot that like the Hawkman and Hawk Girl stuff they set up even happened. So it was really, really interesting. Oh, yeah. And then Martian Manhunter was just ignored for years, which is, you know, real fun. But it's it's an interesting period because I remember liking a lot of the books that were going on at the time, especially this Detective Comics run, because a few arcs before this, you had um, Greg Rucka writing all of his fantastic Batwoman stuff in the same book. And it was just, it felt like Detective Comics as a title could not go wrong during this time period. It was just so, so solid. And it's it's one of the things that makes the New 52 as a whole even more confusing to me because I'm like, I don't remember a lot of flops from this era. It just feels like this is DC Comics performing at its peak. So I'm not sure what happened to make them decide that we need to start over, which, which it's so weird, especially reading a story like this, which is one of the best Batman stories of all time. And you're like, I can't believe this was the story that led into them saying, okay, scrap it. We're starting from new. We're starting from scratch. It's so it's, confusing to me. It's really interesting you raise that point because kind of the more I learn about the new 52 and how it kind of came out of Flashpoint was that it was a very last minute decision by DC editorial mm-hmm. that kind of when they were pitching Flashpoint and kind of like the year or two leading up to it, the idea was never to use it originally as a relaunch and a, and a way to reboot the DC universe. It's just kind of DC editorial got that itch that they get every kind of three or four years that let's change everything. And so in instances like Batman, and obviously Batman's kind of one of the few characters that doesn't have the kind of history completely wiped by the new 52. Like like you said, Anne, it doesn't feel here that Snyder is writing what's going to be the final Batman story of this era. It feels like just another another Batman tale that's going to lead on to the next Batman tale with Dick kind of under the cape and cowl. And then a month after this finishes, you go straight into New 52 Batman and Dick is back as Nightwing and there's very little mention or reference to the fact that he was just Batman. So, it, so it's really interesting. I do think... As well, though, a really interesting lens on this is sort of that last Batman Incorporated image of little Batman going in on himself forever as the symbol of the the bat, right? That really iconic cover where Batman's flying and then his symbol is another little Batman flying and another little Batman flying. I think it's so interesting to have the last story of DC's ongoing continuity be such a heavy reference and allusion to Batman Year One but then also not feel like a wrapping up, just feel like another great Batman story because these will be going on forever. I think I, th- I think the similarities to year one are really interesting, not only kind of thematically with kind of how Snyder brings back Jim Gordon Jr., but also in that kind of, even if it was unintentional, making kind of like a full circle moment for post-crisis Batman, that kind of Miller, Miller and Mazzuchelli started with year one back in 86, and then Snyder is kind of bringing back not only kind of the tone and style, but the storylines and the characters from that series and kind of wrapping them up here, but in a way focusing on kind of the next generation of those characters. Whereas kind of year one is about Bruce and Gordon and how Gotham is defined by their relationship. This comic is about kind of, and I think uh, Jim Gordon Jr. even says it kind of in the book's climax that he, he kind of proclaims himself as Gotham's son. And this is kind of a recurring theme of like, what is the next generation of Gotham defined by? And how does Gotham define it, define itself beyond Bruce and, and Commissioner Gordon? So I think that's really interesting. 
I think one of the most interesting issues for me was the one where Dick goes to confront the Joker, who is set up as the red herring of the story, because you can see what role Joker is going to play in Snyder's new 52 run. You look at that and there's this idea of the Joker only does it for Bruce, Mm -hmm. only cares to be the opposite point of Bruce Wayne as this colorful, loud, scary being to Bruce's dark, calculating, mathematically driven Batman. And so the idea that James Gordon Jr. is being set up as Dick's Joker but as the opposite of Dick, where Dick is, again, bright, bombastic, exciting, lots of personality. The idea that Gotham would birth this cool, calculating, cynical, emotionless monster for him. I I think to kind of double down on that idea is that kind of traditionally, Snyder's not kind of the first writer to pull from this, this idea of Batman and the Joker being kind of yin to the yang of Batman is order, Joker is chaos. In the instance of Dick and James Gordon Jr., it's more kind of centered around empathy, where it's kind of like, and especially it's a good contrast between Bruce and Dick as Batman. Dick as Batman is presented as more of an idealist. He's more hopeful. He's optimistic. He sees the good in things. He sees what Gotham could be as opposed to what it is. And then you have James Gordon Jr., who is completely devoid of empathy and compassion and kind of wants to turn you know, in his kind of master scheme at the book's climax, wants to kind of turn the next generation of Gotham into being like him. And so it's this idea of not only kind of the battle for Gotham's soul and its future based around these two kind of children of the pillars of of Gotham in the previous generation of the post-crisis era, but then also kind of how it shows how different Dick is as Batman, that he's a Batman driven by kind of compassion and heart and empathy in a way that we've never really seen and how that's kind of what is going to lead us into the future. I love it. I love the idea that I, I read an article basically breaking down Batman, the black mirror. And I'm going to try really hard not to just restate the ideas that this person had, because it was such a great article, but something that they touched on was the idea of James Gordon jr. As the son Gotham couldn't save. That if we're looking at the two main characters of Batman Year One, we've got Bruce Wayne and James Gordon. And the Black Mirror ends up being the story about each of their sons. One son was... What's interesting is the more broken person's son is the one who was able to be saved. And the person who was able to see stay above Gotham created the son that Gotham robbed from them. You know, you've got this flipped paradigm again. And it's... It's so clever to set them up as this way, this idea of the ongoing legacy as the conflict in this story. It's it's one of the things I love from like just the first couple pages of this book. It's one of the things I love about the DC universe as a whole is that the places are alive. This universe is alive. And I love the way they describe Gotham. Um, just between Dick Grayson talking about how they would treat it when he was traveling with the circus versus how Jim Gordon would treat it, talking like it was something that was alive and had a beating heart. And just the idea that this place could shape the people in it. And I liked what you said, Dallas, about the fact that the one person who Gotham had a hold on, Bruce Wayne, is the one person who raised the raised the guy that Gotham couldn't quite get. And the one guy who managed to stay above it was the guy that, you know, whose son fell. I thought that's incredible. I think it keeps going into the mythology of these characters. Everyone talks about the mythology of DC characters. And I don't think you do that without a place that's as alive and has as much, 
much, I almost want to say motivation as Gotham City does to just claim who it wants to claim and always it <laughs> i just had the um the thought it's kind of like the force where it's like it's always it has to have both sides at all times and it's just it's really cool that way so i just i loved the like literalization of the city shifting underneath dick's feet like as gotham realized it had a different batman they go to that rundown neighborhood that's like this used to be a nice place and now it's a bad place and it was this literal moment of like Gotham is changing for Dick. The villains now are fresh and new and these sort of gritty, I'm almost like neo-noir version of the organized crime that Bruce had to fight in year one is now being presented to Dick. We don't see any familiar rogues other than the Joker. I just, I love this idea of Gotham fighting against Batman as the architect and it's it's really interesting as well because especially if you think about how James Gordon Jr's introduced the story as well as kind of where Dick had come from both of these characters at least in a present day sense are outsiders to Gotham Dick primarily lives in Bloodhaven and I think at this point he'd been he'd been in New York for a while as well um, before the kind of battle for the Cowl saga and it's established that James Gordon Jr has kind of been away traveling living in other places that these are the kind of lost sons of Gotham that have gone off to other places and then have kind of been brought back by these circumstances. I just think that's a really interesting parallel that only as you two were talking, I kind of picked up on. Yeah, and it was definitely, it wasn't until, J- James said it wasn't until he saw Batman smiling and he knew it was Dick under the cowl, but he's exactly. like, okay, got to go back. I was I was, I was, was good, but you know, you brought me back in. Just, just when you thought I was out, they bring me back in. <laughs> well, I also just like making it a storytelling beat that you can't ever really go home. Because, again, they're coming back to the story that was ended with Batman Year One, the quintessential Batman story. They're going home to that storyline, and yet somehow they made the story a successful sequel to that. Somehow they said, Mm -hmm. this is what it means to come home, for these characters to come back to Gotham to face these problems, and this is what's going to spill out of it. And that's a really interesting point because I think one of the kind of recurring motifs and themes throughout this story is the idea of kind of the the resistance and the fear of change. It's so like, and it's also interesting from an editorial standpoint, thinking about this being the kind of transition between post crisis DC universe and the new Fifty Two DC universe. This story all being about characters being afraid of evolving and changing. Dick is afraid of the expectations of being Batman. He's, you know, we get the scenes of him and Alfred where he's kind of um, hesitant to kind of make his home his home. There's kind of nothing in his penthouse to kind of signify that he lives there. Um, and then for for Gordon as well, he's kind of, it's his past coming back to haunt him. James Jr. has kind of been away for a long time. And obviously kind of like Barbara is much like Dick is for Bruce, everything you could want in a child. And then kind of James Gordon Jr. kind of being this kind of like his greatest failure coming back to haunt him um it kind of really kind of reaffirms that idea of like change is inevitable and we have to either accept it and kind of adapt with it or it will kind of pass us by but then also like we talk about with kind of gotham's rogues evolving and the kind of look and style evolving and then batman and his relationship with the people of gotham evolving as well that it's it's this kind of constant reminder that change is inevitable and change is coming, mm-hmm. which from an editorial standpoint as well, whether or not, and I'm sure by the time that Snyder was writing this, he knew he was taking over the main Batman title in some form. I just think that's a really interesting way of reading this. 
Yeah, and I like that idea of the the villains changing too, but while at the same time utilizing the tools and the the gimmicks of villains past, because mm-hmm. the the whole first the the market arc is just we are reselling all these villain all these villain gadgets that we found around Gotham, which is really cool, because you know Joker's going around playing a new game of fifty two card pickup every single week, so there's plenty of shit lying around. Um, yeah, I think that that's a really cool parallel. And, and from that story, kind of the dealer story that kind of runs at the beginning of this, the image at the end of it of kind of Dick parachuting out as all of kind of like Batman's greatest villains kind of costumes and paraphernalia fall down around him. Mm-hmm. It's such a great encapsulation of this idea. It's kind of like Dick as Batman, as the kind of signifier of this new era and generation, kind of coming back down to Gotham through all of kind of these remnants of history and all of these kind of artifacts. It's such a kind of great visual reminder of where we're going. Well, I even think leading into that, the idea that he has to fight a monstrous bat Mm. to get to that point is also very interesting. Having the villain transform themselves into a half-made man-bat is like, oh, so Dick Grayson has to defeat the idea of this own version of like a Barbados figure, this mythical bat, to then be able to walk away from how Bruce had been Batman and how Gotham had been with Bruce as Batman. It's really clever. Um. I have a question for you, Anne. So we've been talking a little bit about how this is a story about how you can't come home. It's a story about change and for momentum for a lot of people putting Dick Grayson under the cowl and in Gotham as Batman was a major character regression. Do you agree with that? Or do you think that this is a kind of forward momentum and change for Dick that was positive and interesting? See, that's that's the hard one, because I would like to, one of the things I'd like to do eventually is go back and look at where Dick was at this point, because I'm very unfamiliar with his, his path as Nightwing, especially in the 2000s. That's been on my to-read list for a while, but honestly, I don't, I never really saw it as a regression. It feels like something that Dick has always been willing to do. I keep thinking back to the end of Nightfall when Bruce is finally back and Dick confronts Bruce about it and he's just pissed that he asked anyone else before him. Because he, you know, he took on the Nightwing mantle to distance himself from Batman. But it doesn't mean that Bruce is any less his family and that he'd be any less willing to take on that burden. So it always it always kind of fit to me that he'd be the one willing to offer that. And I do think there are some really great moments in here that do push him forward. I think him confronting um, James Gordon Jr. again after their childhood, that makes sense. That's really cool. I think um, having, um, what, what's her name? Um, Zuko? Is that Sophia, Sophia Zuka, or I can't yeah. remember what her kind of new name is. Right. Having him confront the daughter of the man who killed his parents is also really, really important, really big and powerful. And he wouldn't be able to do that as night when he'd be somewhere completely different. I'm not sure. Like, it, I think it's hard for me to say. I feel like some of the stuff you could have done with him as Nightwing, but some of it you just couldn't because a lot of this feels like it has to be a Batman story. I think the decision to kind of make Dick Batman, both in terms of how it's executed in this kind of period of comics and also just kind of as a concept is really interesting because in one hand, yeah. And like you say, it's, it's Dick kind of becomes Nightwing to get away from the shadow of Batman. And in some extent you can kind of read it as him being kind of dragged back into that. But then there's also the idea that it's kind of like him, he's in this situation in battle for the cowl, he's kind of forced back into being Batman Bruce is dead. Jason Todd's a crazy man killing people. Bane is rocking up in a Batman suit. Like someone Mm -hmm. 
there's someone like decent and someone capable of kind of honoring Bruce's legacy has to step step in. So it's like when Dick becomes Batman, it's more like he does it out of obligation for his father's legacy, more so than any kind of personal desire to do it. Yeah, it's like a sense of responsibility. Like, yeah, exactly. It's this idea of like he was kind of Bruce's right hand man throughout the last kind of 20 years of his war. And now who better to kind of step up and, and who better to understand what Batman means both to Bruce and as a symbol, as a, as a wider concept than Dick. But then also when I think about what Dick Grayson is and what he kind of represents in the Batman mythos, the way I've always interpreted that character is kind of, he's what Bruce Wayne wishes he could have grown up to be. You know, Dick is someone that went through the same horrible childhood and went through the same trauma as Bruce, but where Bruce kind of had to figure it out himself and had to kind of turn his trauma into basically a kind of living coping mechanism, which is what Batman is. Dick has that guidance and that parentage and that mentorhood to overcome it and kind of grow above it. And so kind of him becoming Batman, inheriting that kind of living symbol of Bruce's trauma and the kind of generational trauma that they share but doing it in a more kind of inspiring and optimistic way. Because, like, you know, Bruce's Batman is so stoic and is so kind of gritty and so kind of dour. And in this, like, Nightwing is chatty and he's whimsical and he's optimistic. I love the interactions with him and Gordon, where Gordon turns around where they're on top of the GCP, GCPD building and Dick's still stood there because he's like, we're still having a conversation. It's like, so it's like he's kind of carrying all of kind of Bruce's successes and failures and the successes and failures he's inherited from him with him while also also carrying with it the lessons that he's learned and the the methods and the ways that he's learned to kind of rise above those so i just think that's that's really cool to me i i'm so glad you brought up the dick staying around to finish the conversation on top of the gcpd because i think that is the quintessential dick as batman versus bruce's batman moment Mm -hmm. where dick is the one who is kind enough to say goodbye. Yeah. He doesn't need to be anything more than Jim Gordon's friend who's working on this thing. He doesn't feel the need. He decides to carry the mantle of the symbol of Batman in a very different way, Mm -hmm. which is inherently compelling to me. But it's also like this idea that he's carrying with him both the best of being Batman and the best of being Nightwing. So it's not like when he becomes Batman in this, in this kind of run, he loses all of the growth and all of the traits he's developed as Nightwing. He brings all that into Batman as well. So it's a really kind of interesting amalgamation of those two characters. Absolutely. Uh, the oldest always has to be the perfect one. They do. They have to raise all the other kids. Um, He's got to raise Damien. That's, that's no easy feat for anyone. <laughs> My favorite little moments is when he's about to say piece of shit. He says piece of Damien. <laughs> <laughs> so good. So good. Um, I want to talk a little bit about the artwork in this because that I don't think this book is that successful without the stellar art team on it. I think the decision to split the two artists between the storytelling types is very interesting because initially it's the Gordon story is from Frank Avila and the Dick story is from Jock. But it then becomes everything that is involved with this strictly noir story, hunting down James Gordon Jr., comes from Frank Avila, while all the things about 
how Gotham is becoming new and shiny and neon comes from Jock. And I think each of their art styles really help you understand the storylines at war in this book. You have a very classic Batman story, hunting down a very grounded, scary thing, coming at you with an art style very reminiscent of Batman Year One. And But with the colors cranked to 11, which is something I love that Frank Avila does, is saying, like, I'm not going to have you wonder at all what the mood is. I'm going to tell you with primary colors how you feel right now. And I love it. I think, obviously, I've been, been kind of reading a lot of Snyder's Batman run over the last kind of two months or so. And the way in which kind of color is used by Frank Avila here is really interesting to me because it not only reminds me of what uh, Mazzuccelli does in year one, like you said, kind of cranks up to 11, but it's also reminiscent of what Greg Capullo does in the later aspects of their Batman run in the new 52. Where kind of once you get into zero year and Endgame and super heavy, Gotham becomes this kind of like hyper colorist, like hyper colorful, super oversaturated, um, kind of wasteland almost in these stories which is so much a contrast to that idea of gotham being this kind of like gray and brown dull dour place which is kind of like brilliantly um drawn by jock in his parts of the story and yet frank cavillas kind of evokes the future direction that gotham's art style would go into this more kind of like super colorful super saturated almost kind of fantastical to an extent in how colorful it is approach I think the the weight of the line between Jock and Frank Avila is interesting as well, because Jock has such thin, sharp lines on what Dick is doing. They're really dynamic poses where we are being shown how acrobatic, how Batman of the future Dick feels whenever Jock is drawing it. It always feels like Dick Grayson is 10 steps ahead of everyone else just from how dynamic the artwork is. These flips, the the way that light is used, the way that the cam the quote camera is positioned to show him diving down at us. There's just such a dynamism there. And then it feels so much more intentionally slow from Frank Avila. Mm-hmm. Batman throws like a single well-posed kick, but because we want zoom-ins on faces when Frank Avila is drawing things. We want the emotions that are going on mm-hmm. from everyone. You can see these ghastly lights on Jim Gordon's face as he realizes what's going on. And it's just, it's interesting to see how much two different artists can change the pace of a story. Because I wasn't thinking very much about what Dick was thinking while he was fighting Tiger Shark, but I absolutely knew how everyone felt mm-hmm. when they were fa- fighting James jr at the end of this book and it makes a lot of sense too because that the batman stuff is all you know it's it's batman it has to be larger than life it's about batman it's about gotham it has that really angular gothic feel to it which i adore and i love and you were just talking about how all the action felt so loud and i completely agree and then everything happening with um james Gordon jr is so quiet and personal because it's a story about a father and his son and just the relationship in that family. And that is something so quiet and human. And just thinking about the fact that this is one of the stories we picked for Halloween and going back and thinking about um, books that we read earlier about other serial killers, like my friend Dahmer and just how like human that story is where it's like, this is something that could happen anywhere. And the James Gordon Jr. is a comic book villain villain, but he's someone that could actually exist in real life. And that's terrifying. I do want to point out one thing, though, about James Gordon Jr. and the Mm -hmm. times that Jock draws him. 
the times that Jock draws James Gordon Jr. are when there is the mutilated corpse in the basement. Yep. With no arms or legs. Or when James Gordon's own mother is mutilated there. Because I think the decision there to switch back to like, oh, and so put it so beautifully, like the gray and brown, horrible Gotham, where it doesn't feel operatic. It doesn't feel like this gasping story. It feels like a terrifying procedural serial killer story. And so having Jock draw those specific moments for me made them stick in my brain as something more cold and scary than the rich oranges and purples of him coming after his sister there at the end of the story. Yeah, because for those scenes, the shock is what matters most. And that makes all the sense in the world to have Jock do those. That scene with the, the guy mutilated in the basement has stuck with me for years. That's one of the best page turns I think we've ever covered here on the show. Mm-hmm. Because up to that moment, I wish that we were able to have Lexi on this show. Because up to that moment, you don't know if James Gordon Jr. is actually better. You don't know if he's actually even ever been as scary as everyone wants him to be. Like, there's a real question mark there until there isn't. And it is such a perfect turn the page. You have all the right context. And that artwork just sings and your heart drops out of your body, realizing that they are all in so much trouble. Oh, the one the one thing I wanted to ask about that one is because we have that reveal and then the next issue has the other reveal of the um of I think her name is Bess, her keychain. Mm-hmm. And I was just debating with myself, it's like which one of those is the better first reveal? The shock of he is actually killing people now or the shock of exactly what you thought he used to do, he actually did. Because well, I, I feel like that second one doesn't hit as hard once you see that he is already a murderer. But yeah. I think they're perfect. Oh, I'll let you go. And I've been talking a lot. No, I, I was just going to say, I kind of agree with that. I think maybe a better way to structure that would have been have one issue end with Gordon kind of finding the keychain, and then having the next issue open with that final page of James kind of in the cellar with the kind of mutilated body mm-hmm. just to kind of like double down that. Well, I was going to say, I just, dis- I disagree. I, uh, I like the reveal to the reader being that horrific scene. And I like the reveal to the story being that very emotionally driven finding the keychain. And I like that. I like that the art. So we kind of see it from like this grotesque standpoint where we kind of see James Gordon Jr. for what he really is. Whereas Gordon kind of learns about it in a deeply personal way. Mm -hmm. Avoid of actually seeing any of the gore. He just sees this kind of like very symbolic realization Mm-hmm. Yeah. Just yeah. the gut punch again from Frank Avila, the emotional artist saying like, oh shit, like everything has been true. Like all the excuses I've made for this kid are bullshit. Yeah. So we get the visceral reaction and James Gordon gets the emotional reaction. Well, that, that's kind of what I'm thinking now. It's like if, if you're kind of Commissioner Gordon in that situation, which reveal would impact you more to see them? Would mm-hmm. it be to see kind of this stranger being horrifically mutilated? Or would it be kind of this realization that for 20 years, an incident where you were there and you kind of didn't, you didn't do anything, you didn't stop it. Mm-hmm. You And you'd kind of convince yourself in the years after that, no, it wasn't that, I, I got it wrong. I found the guy who actually did it. Mm-hmm. And all those years later to realize, no, you were wrong and you you kind of had a monster under your nose this entire time. And that therefore everything that he's done since is kind of, to Gordon's 
imagination to him, kind of his fault for not stopping when he had the chance to. Oh, yeah. Yeah, because, you know, mutilated body in the basement, that's that's a Tuesday in Gotham. Yeah, like how many, how many like mutilated bodies has Commissioner Gordon seen? At least 58. I want to touch on that concept of like the stuff that to us feels most outlandish is most normal to them. You can see it in the story where Dick is a thousand feet under the water getting ready to fight someone with pet orca named Tiger Shark. And he's like, just another Tuesday. He fights a guy with cybernetic legs and he's like, just another Tuesday. This is what it means to be in Gotham. He finds out that just a regular woman who was the daughter of a criminal changed her name. And that is what he like fixates on. Mm -hmm. He looks at this normal woman who might be a little shady. And he's like, this is the scariest thing about all this. And I was like, oh my gosh, Gotham rotted your brain. Like, no, Tiger Shark is actually scarier. All this crazy stuff is scarier, but it's just another Tuesday for Batman. And I think this story does a good job of showing us that, I mean, the thesis of the book was that like regular people can be terrifying, right? Joker tells us that. It's like, it's the normal things that are scary. It's the normal people that are scary. And this book tells us that through the story. It wasn't any of the fantastical new villains we met that were scary. It was the person who could exist in the real world that was Mm -hmm. so scary. It's not oftentimes that you see Batman not fight a supervillain and just a flat out villain. And it's, I think, I feel like it's because oftentimes you need a character who is larger than life to exist in a world like Gotham city. You need them to be able to rise above everything else. And it's amazing to me that Scott Snyder found a way to use such real horrors and real things that people are capable of to say, even that can stand above in Gotham city, even that can still relate to the story and using such a personal route, going back to James Gordon jr. Using that as the end to make this work. I think that's what really makes the story stand out so much because when I first read the story, I, you know, after not reading it for several years, I would lose several of the plot details. I forget things about like Tiger Shark and forget about the dealer, but I would never forget about James Gordon Jr. Not for a second. And I, I think a really interesting comparison can be made between kind of the two stories in this trade. So in kind of the first half, you've got this story focused on the dealer. And in the second one, you've got this focus on on James Gordon Jr. And I think that both of them serve a very similar purpose, but in different ways in which the, the the dealer saga is all centered around kind of these remnants and these artifacts of Batman's past. And it's essentially this story of Dick overcoming the legacy and the past of Batman. This idea of kind of all of these, the, the crowbar that killed Jason Todd, the Riddler's costume, all of these different things that are so synonymous with all of the history of Batman, that in order for Dick to kind of assert himself as the official Batman has to endure and go through all of those and then in the second half of the story when it focuses on james gordon jr it's something that's deeply personal to dick grayson as opposed to batman it's established that dick has a has a history and has some extent of friendship with james gordon jr obviously dick and barbara have such a close relationship so the first half of the story is all about the legacy of batman and then the second half is all about the legacy of the people kind of underneath those costumes i have a dallas color theory oh corner oh boy here we go I, I've been looking at the Francavilla art. Basically, mm-hmm. I felt like I had to make up for not liking this when I was 16. Okay, I so- felt like I had to be like, 
you were an idiot and now I'm going to prove to 16-year-old me why you were an idiot. And the use of oranges and reds for James Gordon Jr. is so interesting because it it burns so hot on the page. Whenever he's doing something horrifying, there are moments where he's cool. Absolutely. There are moments where there are greens and purples and blues. But when he's doing something horrifying, it's red and orange. When he's being creepy as hell as a little kid in the past, it's red and orange. And these hot colors are so interesting because his whole point is that he is cool and collected and logical. Without empathy, he is the one who's seeing the real world for how it actually is. He doesn't burn hot with the emotions of all these other people. But the artwork is telling us the exact opposite, that he is burning very hot when these scary things are happening. And I think that the best demonstrator of that is actually in his introduction where, so you have this scene of, of Jim and Barbara in the diner and, and Jim is kind of painted in this orange glow because obviously he's fearful and he's seen the surveillance footage of James Gordon Jr. And Barbara's kind of colored in, in purple and blues. Um, you know, she's kind of very dismissive. And then when there's the reveal where Barbara gets up and, and leaves and, and James Gordon Jr. comes and sits down, the entire book then just becomes any sort of shadow or any semblance of the purple and the blue kind of completely vanishes. And both characters, the entire scene is just bathed in those oranges and those yellows. It's so cool. I also, I love the two-page spread where on the left, you have James Gordon in the present day investigating a murder. And on the right, you have the story about the missing keychain. Mm-hmm. And so you've got the blue mm-hmm. and the red split down the middle of this page. It's first off, it's a brilliant spread, but you can see the left are all of the times that James Jr. did something horrifying. He's like this little weirdo kid. He like rips a bird apart and he comes out dressed Mm -hmm. as the Joker. All of that is still colored in blue because you can see James Gordon or Jim Gordon is rationalizing all of this. He's like, oh, he's just like a little bit off. He's whatever. But then the real horror is in that much subtler page on the right about the keychain and about how they know deep down that there's something wrong with this kid and they they can't rationalize that one away i i love the idea of him being the joker is one of the like the the signs in like the dc universe that your kid's going to grow up to be a serial killer but i i feel like since he was classic joker i feel like i could forgive it a little bit if he came out as the um <laughs> as the suicide squad joker then that's how you know your kids lost it he comes out and he has you know like the grill going on you're like nope nope i gotta i gotta get this kid some help but it's all it's also interesting knowing obviously the relationship that barbara will have with the joker as well seeing kind of james gordon jr kind of idolizing him and then there's also the kind of moment later on um where james kind of talks about being kind of cellmates and and being next to the joker there is almost that kind of idea where it's like like we talked about earlier hannah he is dick's joker but in a sense of kind of like we're the Joker matches Bruce's level of fantastical. James Gordon Jr. Ra- matches kind of Dick's level of kind of being human and being real. I'm just, I'm flipping through these pages again and going back to the orange and the blues, mm-hmm. that same issue with the two page spread about the keychain is the issue where then uh, James goes to catch the Peter Pan killer. Right. And you can see all of those pages are very cool and blue. Because that's the logical answer. Mm -hmm. That is the, nope, I'm going to prove that it wasn't my kid by going and doing my detective job and finding this terrifying guy. But 
all the pages with James are still red and are still him sitting there with the little science kit, the look of horror on Jim Gordon's face. And the colors are telling you one of these is scarier than the other. Even though we're catching a literal serial killer in the blue colors, it is less terrifying than a kid playing with a science kit because of the colors. The way in which the art in this book, especially when it does those kind of like reverse panels, which shows you two scenes at once, really kind of reaffirms another interesting theme of this book, which is kind of like trusting your heart versus trusting your head, which I think not only is kind of Gordon's journey through the book, but also kind of parallels how Dick is Batman versus how Bruce is Batman, where Bruce is a very logical Batman. He does things based off data and evidence and facts. He sees things in a very kind of objective way. Whereas kind of just from this story alone, we can very much approximate that Dick is guided by his heart and his instincts. And it's kind of like, it's a like it shows that parallel and shows how different Dick is from, from Bruce's Batman while dealing with characters that aren't Dick and showing that through the other characters of the story in a really clever way. Oh, I really like this a lot. Do we, before we move into a listener question, do we have any more final thoughts about Batman, the black mirror? There was, there was two things I wanted to ask one specific, one specifically to you, Dallas, which I'll leave. And then one to kind of, we can discuss as the three of us. Talking about the conversation and this kind of a, a reveal that's then pulled back at the end of the book, which insinuates that James Gordon Jr. may have told the Joker that Barbara was Batgirl. And it's this almost like half attempt to retcon the killing joke somewhat. And obviously at the end of it, Snyder kind of pulls back on it, but in a very Joker-esque way, he gives you a non-answer. Mm-hmm. I'm just wondering what you two thought about that. What you think, if that's an interesting choice whether or not you believe it and kind of just your general kind of attitudes towards that. Um, Dallas, you want to feel this one first? I found it really interesting, particularly in the context of how James Jr. was tormenting Barbara. Like there was some really visceral, terrifying imagery that played specifically on Barbara's being paralyzed because of the killing joke. Like when she was crawling away from James Jr., like my I felt sick to my stomach. The knives in her legs was it was terrifying. There was a lot of James making Barbara's being in a wheelchair scary and terrifying and feeling like a vulnerable place, which is not somewhere the Oracle tends to be in these stories. And so I then think him having played against that as often as he did here at the end of the story, to then be like, and I'm the reason it happened in the first place. I'm not just taking advantage. I'm not just making it terrifying now. I'm the reason that it was terrifying in the first place. Is an interesting beat that makes sense for the character. I think on a larger scale, the thing that immediately came to my mind when I read that was that Tom King and Mitch Garrett's what I think is brilliant Batman One Bad Day Riddler story also just did the same thing where Riddler was like, well, I told the Joker to do that. And it feels strange to have all these male villains wanting to take credit for one of the most horrific things to ever be done to a female character in this universe that when done by the Joker, it can feel like chaotic and scary and less personal, but then to have it be like this planned out thing from other entities makes it feel more sinister. And I'm not sure if I, like that 
aspect mm-hmm. of it. You know, I don't like the idea that someone was like, let's do this. You know, I kind of, to me, the killing joke made it feel very much like Joker just arbitrarily did that as part of the day that it he was having, you know, it's, it's one of those things that it's like, if it reminds me of like the Avengers 200 situation where it's like, there's something there are sometimes in comics where there are events that happen, especially to female characters. They're so atrocious. It, there's a part of me that wants to just leave them in the past. Like it, whatever happened, happened. We've moved on past it. We're just going to not bring it up. And so it's one of those things where it's like whenever someone does bring up the killing joke and try to like retcon it or expand upon it, it has that uncomfortable, it has a really uncomfortable feeling in my stomach. And this is one of the situations where giving someone else the idea to, to like someone else giving Joker the idea to do it almost feels kind of symbolic to me because if I remember correctly, someone else gave Alan Moore the idea to do it because I believe it was Len Wine who said, and I quote, because it's one of the most awful quotes I've ever heard in my life, cripple the bitch. And it makes it feel like, it It reminds me of that. It reminds me that this awful thing happened because someone made the Joker do it. And if you want to give it like an in-universe reason or not, that's immediately where my mind goes when I think about it. And it does make you feel uncomfortable, so it f- serves its purpose in that effect. But it is hard to to stomach because it's just like, more awful on top of an already awful situation, which is why I'm glad that in the story, at least Barbara doesn't, Barbara still has a bit of agency. She's the one who deals like that, that blow to James, which I really appreciated. I like when they were writing Oracle in this time period, they did not skimp on letting her take care of herself, which I really, really appreciated. Oh yeah. To be clear. I think that she's a dynamic Oh, yeah. Cool character in this story. I don't think mm-hmm. that this story is doing anything that other than drawing attention to something that could be a very scary situation. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, if the, the purpose is to make you feel uncomfortable, then it definitely succeeds. Well, I was listening to kind of you two talk about that. It also got me thinking just about kind of like the characterization of James Gordon Jr. And how until I reread this recently, I didn't realize just how much Matt Reeves had borrowed in kind of his characterization of Edward Nigma. Mm. both in terms of like the look of the character um but also just kind of his personal demeanor when he's outside of the costume there's there's so much of his mannerisms and his interactions with people infused into um the way that the batman kind of characterizes the riddler i'd never really picked up on before yeah Um, wow that's really interesting the other thing i wanted to ask you dallas is coming at this from the second biggest Grant Morrison fan on the podcast today. <laughs> how do you think this kind of, and the, both this story, this run on detective and just generally how Snyder writes Dick as Batman is this very kind of like street level, deeply empathetic and human character forced to grapple with these kind of real people in these real situations, contrasting that to what Grant was doing at the same time with Batman Inc. Where it's this kind of like bombastic, fantastical, almost like James Bondian esque international globetrotting traversing adventures of batman being a symbol more than a person what do you think of the kind of contrast between those two interpretations of batman and what you think of the fact that they're running parallel to each other in this period like do you think that's a cohesive can you do both at the same time because they're like very much two different ends of the spectrum of interpreting batman and yet both are kind of being done at the same time in an interconnected series 
That's a great question. I think I think both tones are appropriate and feel very Batman, and I like that they existed at the same time. I I do think an important part of Batman Incorporated is that Bruce fails by the end of Batman Incorporated. This idea that he can create a a network of Batman devoid of himself and essentially heartless you to protect the world, like save the world with capitalism. It doesn't work. And Batman, the black mirror says that if you put someone who cares hard enough in the middle of these horrific situations, they will save the day. And so I almost like that the thesis, when you view these stories side by side is that Batman will never work if Batman doesn't care about the people he's saving. If he doesn't care about the situation and put his whole heart into it. And it's interesting that the heartfelt story is the one with the serial killer and the (laughs) devoid of emotion critique is the one that is the bombastic James Bond globetrotting one. Mm -hmm. Because bringing it back to the beginning of this episode where we talked about Batman universe, that was a heartfelt, kind, fun Batman trotting the globe. So it's interesting that Black Mirror and Batman Inc. almost split the concurrent Batman and Batman 1966 into two and then blend them up and serve them back to you and being like, both of these have half of what you want. Can that work? I like that. Very, very elegantly put. And now I'm hungry. Yeah, now you want a bat smoothie, right? Yeah. Just, <laughs> Delicious. Take yeah. a bat, just throw it in a blender. <laughs> I, I do think that's really interesting, Dallas. I think that what I found interesting thinking about how this compares to what Morrison was doing at the time, because obviously, like, while Snyder goes on from this and becomes kind of the main architect of Batman for the next kind of five or six years, at this time, they are very much playing in Grant's sandbox. Grant has been writing Batman for kind of six years at this point. They do another year and kind of wrap up at the same time that this ends. And so it's kind of like this is Snyder's not only like testing ground for whether or not they can be the next lead writer and like the steerer of the Batman mythos, but also how they can kind of both circumvent and work within the framework of Morrison's larger story. And I think that like Morrison's kind of big, thing in their entire Batman run is this idea of the concept of Batman. Batman as a symbol, which goes from everything from Batman R.I.P. with the Batman of Zero and R all the way to Batman Inc. when they very much take that kind of like, I was reading an interview, not to get too tangential with Grant this morning, where they talk about how the the costume redesign of Batman Inc. where they bring back the yellow oval and kind of that becomes the symbol of Batman Inc was inspired by the marketing for the Tim Burton movie in 1989 and how kind of like just this one symbol of Batman itself is enough to sell it to an audience that you can just market a movie and this movie that made, you know, millions and millions of dollars, one of the biggest movie of all time when it came out, was just sold upon a logo and kind of Morrison takes that and makes that the crux of Batman Inc where it's, it's all based around the symbol and finding different people to fill it. Whereas I think Snyder's interpretation of Batman, both here and then what they would go on to do after this, is more interested in the relationships and how Batman is defined by his relationships. It's it's deeply personal and real, whereas Morrison's is kind of larger than life. And not just in the idea of like the relationships that 
Batman, whether it's Bruce or Dick in the costume, has with Commissioner Gordon or with Barbara or with the villains that they encounter, but also the relationship that Batman has with Gotham and how Gotham is defined by its Batman and Batman is defined by its Gotham, which then contrasting it to what Morrison does by kind of their climax where they take Batman out of Gotham, I think is a really interesting parallel. I do think that's really interesting. And with you talking about kind of the failure of Batman Inc., is that because you can't, you lose something when you remove Gotham from Batman? Yeah. I think what comes to my mind here is when I think of the great Batman writers, Grant Morrison is my favorite comic book writer ever, just period. But I also, I think their take on Batman is the most compelling to me. But very closely behind is Scott Snyder's take on Batman. They're the two that I come back to and I think about constantly because I think they each have a thesis about Batman. I think when I become disinterested in Batman comics is when it's just playing through the motions of Batman. When it's just, we all know what this character is. We all know what the setting is. We all know what this villain is. Let me show you this interesting plot I can play using all these toys, which is how I think about 80% of Batman comics play out. But when I look at Grant's work and I look at Scott's work, I see someone who wants to tell me about the, either the nature of comics or the nature of what it means to be a person through this character. And I think Batman can do that really well. Batman can be used because of how versatile the character he is to tell you about how important it is to have a heart at your center and to focus on your relationships to save the day. And it can also be a character that talks to you about how the nature of story is to be perpetual and how stories can save our life because of the ideals that they pull us towards. And that's the kind of versatility I'm interested in with Batman. And that's the kind of versatility that Morrison and Snyder bring. And I'm not as interested in, well, Batman can go hang out with the Fortnite people because Batman can be anywhere. Like, even though I think I don't want to disparage anyone else's work. I think it's, it's cool that you're making comics. It's cool that you're using this character and inspiring people. But for me personally, these very thesis driven tales about Batman are going to be the ones that I read 20 years from now when I've fallen out of the habit of reading monthly Batman comics. There is nothing on this earth I can say to follow that up because that was beautiful. <laughs> that was perfection. And my final question for you before we read mm -hmm. the question on this is what makes this a special Batman comic to you? I think first it's one of those situations where it's like, I appreciate how much the book grew for me just in my experience reading it from being a book that I was so disinterested in. I put it down after a few pages to being one that I've come to adore more than anything else. And one that I think about more than a lot of other comics. I think that leaves a, a huge impression on me, but also it's just, I think speaking, you spoke a lot about the heart of the book. I think for me, just to focus on the fact that this is one of the things we picked for October, the horror of James Gordon Jr. and the way that this book so elegantly in ways that I didn't even really think about until we talked about it just now, is so, how it so effectively communicates how monstrous this man is. I think that that, whether you're aware of it or not, leaves a lasting, I almost want to say scar on your memory and just 
I when I said I've I lost the plot of this book, but I never forgot James Gordon. I mean that a thousand percent. I think about this character more than a lot of other Batman rogues. I love it whenever he shows up. I loved him in the Gail Simone run of Batgirl when he shows back up. He's just one of those characters that gets under my skin in a way that few others can. And if you want such an interesting and compelling character that you're going to be thinking about him for for months and months, this is this is the book to pick up. Because you will only get to experience this once. And I actually kind of hope that if you haven't read this book that you've stopped listening like an hour ago because <laughs> it's like i want you to get that experience of wondering if or if it isn't um james gordon jr this whole time just because it's there are some books you can't get that first experience back again and this is one of them that was phenomenal and it should be where we end but i have something pedantic to say about artwork Please. again because i can't stop talking about this comic <laughs> um the last issue where Barbara is being held by James Gordon Jr. It's predominantly Frank Avila's artwork, right? And what could just seem like, oh, we need someone to do some extra pages. The scheduling is hard on this, I think is so intentional. Because when you look at this final issue that has both of them on art duty, the there's only one part that Batman is in that isn't drawn by Jock. And it's when Batman is trapped in the Batwing, unable to find them. He's like a bit mm-hmm. player within James Jr.'s larger story. And then the second, the tell before the tell is that Jock's artwork comes back when Barbara smashes the bottle on the face of James Jr. And then you turn the page and motherfucking Batman is back, baby. The hero of Gotham is here to kick the ass of this horrifying little dude that has been steeped in colors and thick lines and he is the dominant personality of this book until that art switch and it's subtle because the coloring is the exact same right between the pages but that line work comes back preparing you for the really dynamic can i play too with the eyes behind james Gordon jr and then just that panel oh it's so good and then just that solid punch from batman and I think going back to what we were talking about earlier, how it's like, um, I think the Francesco art brings a lot of emotion and a lot of connection between these characters because it's, you know, about the Gordon family. I think the moment she stabs him and it switches back from Jock, I think that's also pretty symbolic where it's like, I will pull this knife out of my own fucking leg and stab you in the face because you're not my brother. You're an asshole. Yeah. Oh, it's so good. Very the, good. Everybody was firing on all cylinders to make this book. 10 out of 10. No notes. Yeah, I love it. All right. We've got one really good question that I want us to read, and then we'll move towards sort of the end of the episode wrap up. Mm-hmm. All right. Hi, guys. Huge fan. Black Mirror is one of my favorite comics of all time, and I love what it has to say about Dick and Gordon. That said, do you think the story would still stick the landing if it was Bruce under the mask? This is one of Snyder's best stories, but even after his Batman run, I don't get the impression that he's interested in doing anything more with Dick Grayson. Sort of makes me wonder if Snyder was just editorially tied to telling a story with Dick in Black Mirror and Gates of Gotham due to the status quo. Thanks, Connor. See, I th- you you can obviously if you if you're determined enough, you can find a way to tell the story with Bruce. But I feel like you lose a little bit of that that connection, especially between James Gordon and Dick Grayson, if you switch that. 
I, I think their relationship and having that bit of history here, even though sometimes it feels like it's not adding too much, I feel like it adds something and that's important. And I think you go, going back to what you said earlier, you said Bruce Wayne could figure this out in one issue. Meanwhile, hmm. it took Dick Grayson three little mini arcs to figure this shit out. So if you want a shorter book, then yeah, I guess Bruce could have done it. But, you know, I'm happy with nine issues. I, I think that's a really interesting point to raise that when Snyder goes goes and does the main Batman run, Nightwing isn't really a massive part of any of those stories. Mm-hmm. Kind of one of the revisits in it when I covered it on my channel recently, one of the things that I found really noticeable about Snyder's Batman run is how uninterested he seems to be in using the Robins extensively. Mm-hmm. Especially coming from this period where not only do you have Dick as Batman, but Damien is Robin and Morrison's run in particular is such a heavy focus on that character. Snyder's is very much just about Batman, both as a person and as a concept. But here, I really don't think you could tell this story with anyone else other than Dick Grayson. Because not only because of kind of Dick's relationship with Barbara and the history that they have, but also this idea of the entire book is centered around the sins of the sons and how Gordon's son, Gordon, this kind of like altruistic, you, you know, crown this kind of like diamond in the dirt of, of kind of Gotham's police force and kind of the symbol in which Gotham's good can rally behind Batman included that their kind of son becomes a monster while Bruce this kind of like corrupted figure corrupted and complex figure of Gotham his son becomes its hero so so I think that if this story was Bruce's perspective you'd lose I don't think the fact that it's James Gordon Jr would mean anywhere near as much Obviously, like they have interactions. The the big climax of year one is based around Bruce saving Gordon Jr. But I think the parallel to Dick of them being the same age and kind of growing up together and growing up around so many of the same people, the history is so intertwined. And I think that adds so much to this story that you'd lose if it was anyone else, not just Bruce, but if anyone else was under the cowl, I don't think it'd work quite as well. Agreed. I agree. I think that this is a piece that was born out of constraint. I think if you ask Scott Snyder, do you want to tell a 52-issue Bruce Wayne story or a 52-issue Dick Grayson story? I think it's pretty clearly Bruce Wayne that is the Batman that Scott had so much to say about. But understanding that he was going to get to write Dick Grayson as Batman in Gotham during the Batman Inc. era, we got this specific story out of that. I don't think the story would have happened if those weren't all the things that added up. And so I think it's it's a real tell of the talent of the creative team on this, but also what can occur when you are forced to tell within constraints, when you can't just go off and tell whatever crazy story you want to, you have to play within a status quo and you choose to do it well. Because we've all been a part of those books that phone it in or the, the books where they don't seem particularly interested in the status quo they've been handed. Mm-hmm. And this is such a shining example of even if you get something that might not be what leads to your magnum opus a few years later, you can make something incredible. And you can use the same themes you're interested in to tell a specific story within that status quo. Because this is still a story about how a relationship between two men and Gotham City can shape a Batman comic. It's just two different men in a very different Gotham. But like that thesis didn't change. The execution just changed later. So I would I would argue this is one of the best examples of what a creative who says yes and can accomplish 
more than almost anything else we've read. Mm-hmm. Love it. Hell yeah. I hope if you have listened this far and you haven't read it, I'm so sorry. You should have stopped way <laughs> earlier. Um, but if you have read it, but not for a little while, go and reread this book. Because mm-hmm. I knew in my head that I loved this book. And then rereading it this week, I realized I really loved this comic book. Mm-hmm. And I think we should all spend a little bit more time rereading some of our all-time favorites instead of being mad about stuff we don't like going on oh, right yeah. now. It is much healthier. I don't want health. I want comic fandom. <laughs> I want death <laughs> Read Read good Batman comics. Just don't worry about what the fuck's going on in Batman Fortress right now because I have no idea why that book exists. I didn't even know that it did exist. So that one might be Nickel- on you. Nickel, if you can tell me the plot, <laughs> a nickel, I will, g- no, no, $5. I will give you $5 if you can give me the plot of Batman Fortress. Exactly. Thank it. you very much. I'm keeping my $5. Couldn't do it. All right. So if you liked this show and want to hear more from us at the Comics Collective throughout the week, please go follow our Twitter account at CMX Collective or our TikTok account, the Comics Collective, or you can find each of us at Dallas underscore comics at and comics and at Lexi Lou Comics. Owen, if our friends here want to know more about you, plug away. Tell them about yourself. Hi. Yeah. So firstly, I want to say thank you, Dallas, and thank you, Anne, for having me on. It's always great to chat with you too. And this was this was no exception. A great time with great people and a great book. What more could anyone ask for? Um, but yeah, if you enjoyed listening to, to my unhinged ramblings about comic book history and lore, um, do head on over to youtube.com slash Owen Likes Comics. I think you'll enjoy it. It's like this, but a bit shorter, but also in some ways a bit longer all at the same time. Um, I did recently do a video maybe a month or so ago looking at the entirety of Scott Snyder's New 52 Batman run, which kind of leads directly on from this. So if you've listened to this episode and you've read Black Mirror either beforehand or afterwards, and you want to know what happens next and what this kind of means for the future of Batman over the next few years, then head on over and check that out. We talk about the Court of Owls. We talk about Endgame. We talk about Super Heavy. Can you believe that Jim Gordon, the character from this story with the wild son, becomes Batman and fights a big plant monster it's amazing watch the video um you can find me on twitter at owen lakes comics and yeah pester dallas and Anne to invite me back on the podcast again soon absolutely i think that can be arranged i'm sure we'll figure something out court of owls is a pretty good story look it really Ram- is Ram morrison's got a whole chronology that me and dallas can run through <laughs> i'm trying to avoid that i can't give you too much power oh great Oh, my beloved. Also, if you enjoyed the show and want to show your support, please go to Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening. Give us a five-star review. Do we have one? We have two. Okay. All right. My brother, who has never listened to this podcast a day in his life. Love him. He's my favorite. Gave five stars. He titled it Comics! Exclamation point. Kid's never read a comic in his life. (laughs) He says, love it! Exclamation point. That is... It's the kind of energy I want out of these. I want five stars with no context. Very happy to my lovely brother. He's much cooler than me. All the nerd came out with me. And then Alexis got some residual. And then the last two are pretty normal. Mm-hmm. Um, but Chris Hacker from the Oblivion Bar podcast also left us a five-star review. He says, 
absolutely love Comics Collective. If you enjoy comic book discourse, look no further than this podcast. And I would add, go check out the Oblivion Bar. I was on there recently talking Mm -hmm. about Ninja Turtles, The Last Ronin specifically, which was a lot of fun. And they just have a great show. Chris is a great guy. I got to hang out with them at New York Comic Con this year. So thank you for that review, my friend. And I will say, finally, feel free to email us with your questions or comments for the show at thecomicscollective at gmail.com. Mm-hmm. Yeah, write in. Tell us we're pretty. Thank you. We appreciate yes. it. Also, one more plug while I have a chance. If you like this podcast, make sure you check out Dallas's other podcast, What's Next, the po- the comic podcast where they talk about monthly solicita- solicitations every single month. Get the um, best lowdown on what's coming, what's worth investing in, what you need to check out, and what is definitely worth skipping. It's it's fun just to listen to Dallas and Evan banter for hours. It's literally the best. So make sure you check that out. Thank you. And do you want to tell the people what we're covering next week? Ooh, what are we? Ca- okay, yeah. Um, so next week we're covering this little known book called Invincible. And it's, um, I think it's the third time we're doing this. Like, I don't know why we're talking about the same book three times, but I guess we're continuing on with that. And we will be joined. Uh, will we be joined by Evan on that one? That is my plan. Unless, <laughs> I mean, did you let him out of the basement? I mean, I mean I, it was locked for a reason. I'm getting yeah. very kind of like James Gordon Jr. vibes here and I don't like it. Uh, I, I meant to bring it up. I lost the key and I don't know where it went. Have we not fed Evan? Sh- oh, no. Um, it's been a month. Will, it, listen, um, I want to say it was Lexi's responsibility. I mean, I do think it's kind of funny she's not here this week when we find <laughs> out that Evan <laughs> hasn't been fed in the Invincible Cellar for a month straight. Yeah, um, that's too that's too much to be a coincidence. So, frankly, I'm disappointed. Lexi, I'm so I'm not angry. I'm just disappointed. <sighs> guess we're gonna have to send owen down there to clean it up all right everyone thank you owen goodbye (laughs) bye